Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Boy, I'm excited about this uh, topic that we've been covering the last couple of weeks, the rapture. And uh, every time I think I've kind of put all together the slides that I want to cover in this uh, section of our overall series on what lies ahead, I make the mistake of going back and kind of rethinking it and restudying it, and I end up adding more slides. So I don't know how long we'll be on the topic of the rapture, but I presume nobody will mind. And then eventually we'll move beyond this into some of the other uh, details related to the end times. Again, part of that one-sixth of the Bible that is yet to come, unfulfilled prophecy. Uh, as we're thinking about the rapture, I thought I'd mention, you know, every uh, Sunday when I get here, the first thing I do is look for Jim. Because I know if he's here, the rapture hadn't happened. So uh, I feel like we're safe. You know, for some of you, I'm not quite sure. But with Jim, I think we're in good shape. Uh, so amen. That's right. So, uh, so let me mention again that uh, we do have a book out on the table. We got some more of those in. Uh, so if you've not gotten one, those are available. It's uh, a comprehensive eschatology book covering all of this material that we're going to be covering over the next several uh, weeks and perhaps months. Uh, related to the end times called What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. If you're watching this online, uh, you can still get the book, and we're giving a 25% discount if you go to notbyworks.org and get it at the online store uh, there. And then I also wanted to mention, because I think things are kind of uh, rapidly changing in our world, and I mentioned this uh, Wednesday night in our a Bible study. But when you go to the Not By Works site and you kind of look at the homepage there, you'll see a highlight banner on the highlight carousel cell called, Is the Coronavirus Really a Control of Virus? And what I've done is created a repository of sorts, a, a clearinghouse of all sorts of reliable scientific medical information. I mean, some of these are 50, 60 different medical journals, American Medical Association, JAMA, New England Medical of uh, New England Medical Journal, Lancet, British Medical Journal, uh, thousands of pages, one document on there's 1,200 pages of studies that talk about uh, the testing, the PCR testing, the vaccine, uh, the virus, the numbers, the IFR, all of that stuff. So it, as this uh, uh, pandemic becomes more and more of an issue in our world and sort of the implications of it, especially for churches in the coming year, uh, it might be worth your time to camp out there. I update that every day. Anytime I see a new article or new information or new video, there's uh, tons of videos linked up there on one of the documents. It's called Must See Documentaries. If you click on that document, it lists uh, so far four pages of uh, different videos and articles that are worth your time to watch. So I just wanted to make sure uh, that's available. You know, sometimes we do a lot of complaining and woe is me type stuff about uh, the state of things in our world, but I want to try to give some uh, information and some solutions. So that's there uh, for you. All right, so let's dive in. Uh, by way of review, we've been talking about the end times. We started out by giving you some reasons that we should study the end times, not the least of which is the fact that one-sixth of the Bible relates to the end times. And so if you ignore that subject, you're only getting five-sixths of the Word of God that He wanted us to have. So very important subject. It gives us some perspective for the future. We started out looking at the big picture with Genesis and worked our way forward. We looked at God's eternal kingdom promise and how that is guaranteed and unconditional. And it's guaranteed through His subsequent covenant that He made unconditionally with mankind. And then we talked about how if you understand the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical manner, which is the only way language can ever be studied, 
In other words, when I'm sitting here speaking to you, you're not sitting there thinking, well, I wonder what that code language really means. Let me kind of dig deep and look between the lines and figure out some mystical meaning. And as soon as you get enough goosebumps, you've sort of arrived at what you think I mean. No, you understand what I mean based on the nouns and subjects and verbs and the normal usage of language. And that, after all, is the way that any language can be understood. And it's the way God communicated to us in his word. He did it through language. And so when you come at the Bible, not bringing your assumptions to the text, but letting the text speak for itself. What did it mean to the original audience in the original language when, he re- when the quill hit the sheepskin? What was the plain, normal sense of the text? You will arrive at a, a guarantee for, uh, of God's covenant plan and a clear distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, the church has not replaced Israel. Uh, to do so would take prophecies that were given a thousand years before the church was ever even mentioned in the Word of God and go back and change them which would be, of course, a violation of the rules of language and meaning. So we believe God's plan for the church and God's plan for the Israel are are unique and distinct. And we talked about five purposes for the church and five purposes for, for Israel taken straight from Scripture. And then we sort of got into this mystery of the rapture and how, in the meantime, since that covenant kingdom promise has not happened yet, has not been inaugurated, uh, where does that leave us? Uh, we've been waiting 2,000 years since uh, uh, Jesus left and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, uh, at which time it was promised that he would come back in the same manner. He himself said he will come back and take the throne in all of his glory. And so we've been waiting uh, 2,000 years, and we talked about uh, words like apekdekamai, that means to eagerly wait, and we looked at the theme running through the epistles about how the church is to wait for that blessed hope, the return of Christ. And then we introduced uh, the rapture and uh, two weeks ago and talked about how it's a mystery. And I want to uh, review that here as we get started today. So this is the kind of the uh, 30,000 foot view of the end times. Uh, and we're focusing right now on this event that the Bible calls the rapture. It is, uh, again, a term that is used 13 times uh, in Scripture. And so uh, it's, we'll talk more about that in a second. But the rapture is the next great event to which the world looks forward. It's the first of that one-sixth of Bible prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. Nothing has to happen uh, before the rapture. Uh, It is imminent, uh, meaning it can happen at any moment. If something has to happen before the rapture, then that means the rapture is not imminent. Uh, So uh, that's that's kind of the chart, kind of putting it in perspective. And then everything that happens after that, and this chart is not all-inclusive, but it hits the high points, uh, comprises uh, the subject of Uh, the end times. So as we think about the mystery of the rapture, I want to remind you again that the church is a mystery because to the extent that the rapture only relates to the church and to the extent that the Bible explains both of them as mysteries, we then understand, ah, this is it. This is a plan that was previously unrevealed that has now been revealed in the New Testament of God's Word, and that plan was something un realized in the Old Testament, unmentioned, un, uh, you know, unrevealed. And so Colossians, in similar fashion to Ephesians, what we, which we looked at last week, talks about this idea of a mystery. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So that's what he's talking about here in this passage, the church. <clears throat> of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. This is something new. 
So when you take Old Testament prophecies about the return of Christ and the kingdom, and you try to apply them to New Testament passages that plainly talk about the rapture, you're making a, a mistake. He goes on to say, To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we're going to talk about, I don't know if we'll get there in this session, possibly, if I can talk a little bit faster, maybe we will, uh, but the, the second coming and the rapture are not the same thing. The second coming is one of judgment. It's one of judgment when he, when he you know, judges at the battle of Armageddon and is the climax of the wrath of God. In fact, Revelation 19 tells us at that moment he's coming to tread the winepress of the wrath and, of Almighty God. That's, that's judgment. The rapture, though, as you see here, is a hope. It's a, a message of comfort. It's a message of rescue. It's a message of reward. And, and here he calls it the hope of glory. So we introduced this last week by talking about what is the rapture. And again, we said, like the church, it is a mystery. Paul said, behold, I tell you a mystery. It follows if the church was not mentioned in the Old Testament, and the rapture is the catching up of the church to meet the Lord in the air, that it would obviously have to be a mystery too. We said that a mystery is something previously undisclosed. And so he tells us a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed when in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, then the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we, those who are alive at the rapture, will be changed. In First uh, Thessalonians 4, he talks about it in terms of the harpazo, the catching up. So the rapture refers to the sudden catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air when he returns at the close of this present mystery age, right? And so we looked at several key passages, or at least introduced them, and then we kind of camped out in that first one there, First Thessalonians 4, where the term rapture first appears. In the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament, the word caught up is rapire, from the Latin root rapire, and it means to be caught up. It's the actual Greek word harpazo, to snatch or take away. And as I mentioned, this word harpazo is used 13 times in the New Testament. For example, it's used in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, when the Spirit uh, caught Philip away, harpazo. He caught him up. He, but the term, one of the lexical meanings and contextual meanings of this term in the Greek language is to rescue from threatening danger. And we said that's how it is used when it comes to this end times event called the rapture. It's to rescue us uh, from this present evil age, to rescue us uh, from danger. But specifically what? And this is where we want to spend our time today. This is where we left off last time. Rescued uh, from what? Well, fortunately, we don't have to speculate. The Bible is abundantly clear. For example, in the same letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, where he reveals the rapture in detail for the first time under the inspiration of the Spirit, he tells us twice that God is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. God is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. So those who teach the doctrine of the rapture, do not teach and never have taught. I mean, I'm sure there might be some who are in error or just some uh, lay leaders who might not have really looked into it deeply. But in terms of the formal teaching of the rapture, uh, no one has ever taught that the rapture rescues us before things get really bad. That is a misconception and a misunderstanding. Uh, and in fact, it's naive because things have been really bad for a lot of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years, right? Right? 
So no one has ever suggested that the, the great rescue, the rapture, is rescuing us before it gets bad. What we're saying is the Bible teaches that we are going to be rescued before the wrath that comes. Uh, in fact, the New American Standard translation of 1 Thessalonians 1.10 actually uses that word rescues instead of delivers. Same idea. He delivers us or rescues us from the wrath to come. Later on in this same letter, Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5. For God has not appointed us to wrath. Why not? Because when you trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only hope of salvation, you have appropriated, you have applied Christ's propitiation. Well, what does propitiation mean? That's one of those <clears throat> big $5 words in the New Testament. Propitiation means the satisfying of wrath. So when Christ shed his blood, he paid our debt, paid our penalty, which we've been talking about in our Wednesday night Bible study, and he satisfied the wrath of God against sin. So that as Jesus said, we have, if we believe and receive that gift, pay, that payment on our behalf, you know, he paid the sins for the whole world, but it's only appropriated to those who receive it. Like any gift, a gift is never forced upon you. A gift is purchased, made available, given, and then the recipient has to receive it. And according to the New Testament, we receive that gift, uh, and it says this more than 160 times, by faith alone. So if you have by faith trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone, you have received the forgiveness of sins, you have received the satisfaction of God's wrath, propitiation, you have been born again, adopted into the family of God, uh, and Jesus said, you shall never come into judgment. You've passed from death into life. So God has not appointed us to be on the earth during the outpouring of his wrath. Why would we? I mean, what's the point? If, if we're going to have to endure the, the ultimate culmination, you know, right now, we live in a world where Satan is the prince of this world. He's the power, prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this age. The whole world is under his sway. And things are not always fair, are they? We don't understand it. We don't have the mind of God. We understand uh, that, that, according to Romans 11 and many other passages, uh, that God does uh, what He pleases. He's working out His plan. Uh, we're not entitled to know all the answers. We have to trust Him. But one thing we know is that things don't always seem fair today. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And sometimes bad people go unpunished for a length of time. But we can count on the fact that this is what is so important about the book of Revelation and what is so important about studying the end times is because it's the great equalizer. It reminds us that God has not forsaken his justice. God has not forsaken and forgotten the cries of all of those that have been treated unfairly. That his wrath is going to be poured out upon sin. And that's going to happen during that seven-year period that the Old Testament prophets called the great day of the Lord's wrath. And it was... Uh, the church, of course, as we said, was a mystery, not mentioned in the Old Testament. So this day of the Lord's wrath clearly doesn't apply uh, to the church. And we're going to give you some, re some more reasons for that uh, as well. But we are not appointed uh, to suffer wrath. He delivers us by way of the rapture, which he talks about in this same letter, from the wrath uh, to come. So let's look at some passages that describe this wrath. For example, in the Olivet Discourse, that teaching that Jesus gave the day before he was betrayed in the garden, near the very end of his earthly ministry, before he was crucified and, and then rose again on the third day, he gave this teaching about the signs that would accompany his return to establish the kingdom. 
And though many people mistakenly try to insert the rapture in the teaching about the second coming and the tribulation, the rapture is not found in the Gospels. The only place the rapture is ever even alluded to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John is in the Gospel of John, and I mentioned this last week or maybe two weeks ago, who can tell me where the rapture first comes up in a veiled reference from Jesus himself in the Gospels? Anybody? Yeah. The Last Supper? Yeah. Yeah, the, at the upper room of the Last Supper when Jesus instituted the Last Supper. I think someone over here said the same thing. So you both get $1,000. See me after the service. So that's right. In, in John 14... Jesus, the very night he was betrayed, which, by the way, is the day after the verse that we're looking at took place, uh, Jesus alluded to the fact that I'm going to go away to prepare a place for you. If I go away, I will come again, that where I am, you may be also. Talking about heaven. That's not the second coming, because at the second coming, as literally hundreds of Old Testament verses and New Testament verses combined, he comes all the way to the earth to establish the earthly kingdom with boundaries and physical brick-and-mortar temple and thr throne and so forth. So in that context here, uh, the, the, the rapture is never mentioned in the Gospels. It's not mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about signs of the coming kingdom. The disciples had asked, what will be the sign of your coming and establishment of the kingdom? And he says, let me tell you. And notice what he says. There will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. That period of seven years just prior to his return, and we know it's seven years because Daniel literally gives us the, the seven-year figure. The book of Revelation does. And in this passage here in, uh, in the Olivet Discord, Jesus actually quotes Daniel by name, referring back to that same prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. So there will be a seven-year period that involves great distress and wrath in the land. And then, of course, in Revelation 6, once the tribulation has started, you find people crying out, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The prophets called this a day of wrath. Zephaniah said it's a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now you tell me, how in the world... Is that a message of comfort? And the rapture is a message of comfort. After Paul reveals the rapture, he says, comfort one another with these words. It's not very comforting to think of a day of wrath and trouble and distress and devastation and desolation and darkness and gloominess and clouds and thick darkness. Yippee, I can't wait, right? Uh, Zephaniah goes on, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. It's a day of wrath. Joel said this, uh, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Uh, who can uh, endure it? And so, if we go back to our big picture plan of the ages, and we look at from creation all the way to the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal kingdom of God, we know that we're living right here in the present church age. But we know that this day of wrath is coming, and it's going to transition us into the future kingdom. Now, in, in an upcoming session, I'm going to give you a detailed overview of the Daniel uh, prophecy that we call the 490-week uh, prophecy, 490-year prophecy, rather. The Bible calls it the 70 weeks prophecy. That's from the old King James. But it's actually a 490-year plan that God 
outlines, and he tells us exactly when it's going to start and exactly when it's going to end, okay? And 483 years of that prophecy have already been fulfilled unequivocally to the day. It's amazing. It's, Daniel 9 is one of the most remarkable testimonies, all of Daniel, but especially Daniel 9, to the veracity of God's Word and, and the fulfillment of prophecy, that God set, does what He says He's going to do. So we're going to see how Daniel's prophecy, the first 483 years, have already been fulfilled, but the final seven years haven't. And that perfectly coalesces with the seven-year tribulation that Jesus later talks about. So the wrath of God is yet future. It will be the transition after the close of the church age. And what closes the church age? The rapture. Uh, then we will move into that time of the great day of the Lord's wrath. If you look at the book of Revelation, the majority of the book of Revelation deals with the wrath of God in that seven-year period. Uh, the book of Revelation is one of the easiest books in the Bible to both outline and understand. Uh, it is not confusing. The devil has convinced people it's confusing because of some bad teaching. Uh, if you spend 1,500 years during the Dark Ages not reading the Bible and just listening to the Catholic Church telling you we are the kingdom and the Pope is the king, then, of course, when you read the book of Revelation, if you can dare do it for fear of getting your head chopped off or burned at the stake, and you find all this discussion about Christ coming back and the things that are going to be happening and all of that, you're thinking, that's not happening now, and they tell us we're already in the kingdom, so we're already in chapters 20 and 21 of Revelation. How can this make sense? And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, baggage to undo, a lot of bad teaching to undo from centuries of uh, control over the mindset of the church. But once the Reformation happened and believers began reading the Bible once again for themselves and taking it in its literal, grammatical, historical approach, they understood it means what it says. And so, understood in that way, it's pretty simple uh, to outline it. The first three chapters are uh, dealing with church, the church age. Uh, Christ is introduced. He is the revelation that the book is named after. And then church, uh, the churches are uh, written. He writes letters to the seven churches, literal, historical, first century churches in verses chapters 2 and 3. Then in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to look at this passage in our message in Hebrews this morning. Um, uh, we have what's called a theodicy, a justification for the wrath of God. Uh, what gives God the right to pour out His wrath? What's going on here? Why, is all, why are all these terrible things about to happen? And we read in Revelation 4 and 5 that it's because the Lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world and shed His blood, He is worthy to open the seals of God's wrath. And so then the first seal is opened, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. And what is it? The revelation of the Antichrist. The rider on the white horse, that's the fake, the imposter, the one coming against Christ. But chapter 6, all the way through the end of chapter 19, this whole main section of the book of Revelation comprises the outpouring of the wrath of God. It's the consummation or the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament passages, some of which we just mentioned a moment ago. In chapter 6, after the sealed judgments have begun to be poured out, uh, we see the verse I mentioned a moment ago, the people crying out, the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? The wrath is already happening. See, some uh, Bible teachers try to suggest that, well, you know, we won't be here, the church won't be here for the entire tribulation, but we're going to be here for part of it. And even they 
because the Bible could not be more clear, have to acknowledge, well, we know we're rescued before the wrath, so the first half of the tribulation must not be wrath. So if you look at this uh, chart again, they would say, you know, the rapture happens somewhere around the midpoint, because that's when the wrath starts. Cannot be. We just showed you that the wrath of God is already happening in chapter 6 with the seal judgments. In fact, it's the seals of wrath that Jesus opens as the Lamb of God. Who is worthy to open the seals? Jesus Christ. Okay. So if you go back to my uh, chart here, if we were to overlay here at the bottom of the screen the, the judgments of wrath, we see them in the form of seals, trumpets, and bowls. So first we see the seal judgments. Again, the very first one is the introduction of the Antichrist. And that starts uh, when he signs the peace treaty with Israel, starts the clock ticking on the seven years. And then the seventh seal introduces seven more judgments of wrath, which are called trumpets, announced by trumpets. The seven trumpets announce uh, seven more judgments, which are called bowls or vials. And when you get to the seventh trumpet, it announces these bowl judgments, all of which uh, really relate to that final you know, two, three day, one or two day period of the Battle of Armageddon in preparation for that final uh, battle. So we recognize that evil men and imposters are getting worse and worse. We've talked a lot about this uh, verse, and I mentioned it in my sort of ad hoc discussion that we had about the events at uh, the nation's capital this week on Wednesday night. Uh, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. We understand that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We understand that the earth is the devil's playground because uh, as he mentioned in, in the book of Job, when God said, where'd you come from? He said, I came from going to and fro on the earth. I, I come and go on the earth and I'm wreaking havoc because this is my territory, he thinks. You kicked me out of heaven, fine, I'll take over the earth. And so the whole earth is under the curse of sin. Next time we have a horrible snowstorm or we have fires or drought or earthquakes or just remember that's the curse of sin those things won't happen in the kingdom when christ is on the throne that's not the way god made this earth and as beautiful as the rocky mountains are and, and, and people come from all over the world to see beautiful uh, things like the rocky mountains and to go hiking and skiing and whatever that you can't you, that's just nothing compared to what it was like before the curse of sin we're seeing the, the corrupt world. We're not seeing the world in all of its glory when, the way God created it. So this is the, the devil's playground. And things are getting worse and worse. But what you need to understand that because things are getting worse and worse, ever since sin entered, we are experiencing worse and worse sin and manifestation of sin and evil. Sin has always been around since the garden. But the manifestations of it and the degree of it and the expression of it, according to biblical authority, 2 Timothy 3.13, are getting worse and worse. So for anyone who thinks that the rapture means we're going to be rescued before it gets too bad, they're missing the point. It's already bad. It's already bad. And many uh, millions of Christians have been martyred. Many Christians are being martyred even today as we speak for the cause of Christ. But what it does say is that this degenerative disease called sin is going to reach a climax in this final cosmic struggle when Satan indwells the Antichrist and he imposes all sorts of one world government measures, one world financial system, complete global police state control grid over the earth. So you can see why so many people looking at the headlines today suggests that we, we might be getting closer 
to that period of time because the stage is being set for that. Again, we can't point to the newspaper headlines and pick a date because we don't know. The rapture is imminent. It could happen at any time. But if we see the stage being set for the types of things described in the book of Revelation, it would make sense to assume it could be close. And you better get your house in order, right? And so, but notice that the, tr that the church is gone before the tribulation and the great day of the Lord's wrath. Uh, he does not rescue us before things get really bad. There's no promise of that. He rescues us before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, so I know we've talked about this before, but the last days in Scripture is a term that refers to the present age. People often confuse last days with end times, but we live in the last days, which is the church age. The end times begins with the rapture, and comprises everything that follows all the way up to the new heavens and the new earth, when time shall be no more. Right? And a good portion of the end times that the Bible talks a lot about is this seven-year period known as the wrath of God. And we are promised in the same, <clears throat> same book of the Bible that introduces the doctrine of the rapture, that we will be rescued from the wrath that is to come. Because God has not appointed us to wrath. Now, there are many other things that I'm going to talk about as we go forward now that demonstrate biblically why the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Uh, but I want to spend the rest of our time uh, talking about a key passage of Scripture that I think sort of settles the issue exegetically. And that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So uh, I call this the departure. And so I want to mention before I forget that I do have a two-page front-and-back journal article that I wrote. I don't even remember when. The date's not on here. But it was probably 10 years ago or more uh, in the Grace Family Journal called Is the Rapture in 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2? And I made copies of this, and I'll give them out at the end uh, so that you guys can have it. If I give them out now, you'll be reading this and not listening to me. And that hurts my feelings. So I'm going to wait and give these out at the end of uh, the session. But don't feel like you have to take copious notes and you know, write down everything I say because I'm going to give it to you here at the end. And by the way, if you're watching this on video, um, I'll tell you what, it's, it's actually on the website, but it's behind the paywall on the premium content. So unless you're a subscriber to the Not By Work site, you won't be able to find it. But if you want this, just email me, and I'm happy to send you this article as a PDF uh, So for those of you watching online. Okay, so let's start out with verse chap uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. So what event is he clearly talking about here? The rapture. He had already written one letter. Uh, to them, 1 Thessalonians, in which he introduced and had a lot to say about the rapture. So he's coming back to that, you know, now concerning. Uh, in Greek, it's peridae, it's kind of introducing this next subject, and he's, he's moving on from what his introductory remarks were in chapter 1 to talk about the rapture. He says, concerning the rapture, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Day of Christ, some translations say day of the Lord. Uh, I think it probably the original text was day of the Lord, but it doesn't really matter. He's talking here about the same thing we just 
gave several verses about the great day of the Lord, often a metaphor for the tribulation period and the day of God's wrath. So evidently, since Paul's visit to Thessalonica and his first letter that he wrote to them, the Thessalonians had started facing increased persecution. And they were troubled by that. They were shaken, he said, in, in mind. And to make matters worse, some people were erroneously suggesting that this persecution was, in fact, the prophetic wrath of God being poured out that Paul had twice told them in his first letter they don't have to worry about, right? So some believers in Thessalonica thought they were already in the day of the Lord, and that was pretty scary to them because they knew their Old Testament, and they knew that it was the day of the Lord's wrath is an overflowing scourge. It's an unbelievable time. And so they were troubled by that. And Paul addresses it. So he says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless two things happen first. You cannot possibly be in the day of the Lord, the, the, the wrath of God, the tribulation, unless these two things had already happened. One of them is the apostasia, that's the Greek word for falling away. Apostasia, we'll come back to this in a second, okay? But here it's translated falling away. And the second thing that has to happen in order for the day of the Lord to be here, for you to be in the tribulation, is that the man of sin, the Antichrist, has to have been revealed, right? So let's, uh, let's talk about this word apostasia. Apostasia. It simply means departure. And as with all words, the context must determine, must determine the meaning of departure from what. In some cases, it means a spiritual departure, like departing from the faith, departing from the Christian community, departing from the Lord and your faith, right? But in other cases, it means a physical departure in terms of geography, moving from point A to point B, something physically moving. So the question is, what departure... Does Paul mean? Now, ever since the King James Version was translated, and they translated it falling away, which implies a spiritual apostasy, people have assumed for hundreds of years that Paul was talking here about a spiritual falling away. Now, I'm going to show you why that's not correct, but let me just kind of tell you the way my mind works when I read passages like this. Let's assume that that is what he's talking about. The way, by the way, most commentaries still to this day suggest. Well, how can you really quantify a spiritual departure, a spiritual falling away? I mean, there have been spiritual apostasies throughout 2,000 years of the church age. There were spiritual apostasies in the first century. In fact, many other passages of Scripture warn against, for example, Hebrews, departing from the living God. So if that's the sign that he's giving them, to convince them that they're not in the day of the Lord, is it really much help? And how can you ever look at the world and say, okay, this is the apostasy, so now I recognize the sign. So I think that's just the way my mind works. I'm thinking it sort of goes without saying that he can't be talking about a spiritual apostasy. But let's make the case contextually here. So as I said, the word apostasia can either mean a physical or a spiritual departure. In the first century, we see apostasia used by Josephus, who wrote concurrent with the New Testament, not inspired Bible, but a, a, a first century historian. And he talks about a rebellion against civil authority, using this word in, in this way. 
And we also see around this same time the word used to describe a fever departing from someone who was sick or a ship departing from a, a dock. Apostasia, a departure. Right? The term apostasia is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, most often in terms of the children of Israel rebelling or departing from the law. Uh, but in the New Testament, the verb form of the word apostasia is used 15 times. And there's no difference between, in basic meaning between the verb and the noun. It still means departure or departing. And in the New Testament, again, sometimes it does mean a spiritual departure from the faith or from religious teaching, that kind of thing. Uh, but it also uh, can mean a physical departure. In fact, the verb form is, is used most often in the New Testament, more than spiritual departure, of a physical departure. So again, we have to look at the context to decide, is he talking here about a physical departure or a spiritual departure? So let's go back to the text. Uh, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, this day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord's wrath, will not come, or you can't be in it, unless the falling away comes first. What does he mean by falling away, physical or spiritual? Is there anything in the immediate context that would clue us in that he's talking about a physical departure? Or is there anything in the immediate context that alludes to a spiritual uh, departure? I don't see anything in the context. It would be sort of bringing it up out of nowhere that refers to a spiritual falling away. But we sure do see some examples of physical departure. First of all, right off the bat in verse 1, we see physical movement. The coming of the Lord from heaven to the sky, our departure from the earth to the heaven to meet him in the air. That's a lot of physical movement going on there, right? But then we also see it uh, again in uh, later on in this passage. I don't think I'm going to get there for the sake of time. I just looked at the first three uh, verses. But he's talking about uh, the restrainer being taken out of the way. Again, a clear mo physical movement. If something is taken out of the way, it's moved, right? Um, and, and that's uh, in verse 7. And then we even see of the arrival of the Antichrist on the scene. Him coming and, and taking his place on earth. That's physical movement. But not only do we see a lot of physical movement going on in the context, in light of Paul's teaching about the rapture in his first letter in Thessalonians, uh, and his insistence twice, as I mentioned, that the church will not be here when the wrath of the Lord happens, it seems clear that in the second letter he would remind them, or logical anyway, about that departure and remind them that they can't be in the day of the Lord because that departure hasn't happened yet. So the way I kind of summarize this or paraphrase it, remember the Bible wasn't written in English. So I know some of you may have studied this for 50, 60 years perhaps, and you've depended on the commentaries and good men have interpreted it as a spiritual apostasy, but I'm just challenging you to remember that we got to go to the Bible first. I think it was, uh, I'm not positive, but I think it was Charles Spurgeon who famously said, never forget the Bible will shed a lot of light on commentaries. <laughs> we tend to think it's the other way around, right? And so... Uh, you've got to come at it with a blank slate and not just assume it means something. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any way in the context it can mean spiritual departure. I think he's talking about the physical departure. And so I would say, I would translate apostasia, the Greek word, for that day will not come unless the departure comes first. 
What departure? The one I've already told you about. So here's how I would paraphrase it. Again, this is my paraphrase. I'm not intending to say this is the Greek word-for-word -word literal wooden translation, but this is how I would paraphrase what Paul is saying. My Thessalonian brethren, concerning the Lord's coming to rescue us from the day of the Lord's wrath, which I've already told you about in my first letter, I ask you not to be worried or shaken in your faith. I realize that some false teachers are suggesting that the day of the Lord has already begun and that you're about to face the full force of God's wrath on earth, but don't believe it. Don't be deceived. Remember, as I said before, the day of the Lord will not begin until after you depart from this earth. And not only that, but before the day of the Lord can begin, the man of sin, the Antichrist, must be unveiled first. Since neither of these two things has happened, the departure and the revelation of the Antichrist, you cannot possibly be in the day of the Lord. So fear not. And be aware that when the Antichrist does come, after you've all been rescued from this present evil age, he will bring terrible deception and lying wonders on the earth, which is what he goes on to talk about in verse 4 and following, and many will perish because they never believed the gospel. So in light of, uh, in light of the exegetical considerations, the lexical meaning of the word apostasia, and the context, and also theology, comparing Scripture with Scripture, that's all theology is, I think it's best to take apostasia as a reference to the rapture, the physical departure. And I might add, just so you don't think I'm out on an island kind of alone in this, there have been many throughout history and even today who hold this view. Uh, great men of God like J. Dwight Pentecost, uh, uh, Alan McRae, East Schuyler English, Stanley Ellison, H. Wayne House, he's still uh, living. He wouldn't appreciate me saying that because he's not that old, but a lot of these others are dead. That's why I said it that way. Uh, Tommy Ice, a good friend of mine, a solid Bible teacher, holds this view, and I'm sure many others, but those are some uh, that I uh, know hold this view. So does that make sense? And I'll give you, again, the written form of kind of what I just explained uh, verbally. But if, if I'm right, and again, I'm not going to die on this hill because, you know, people have different interpretations. Uh, but if I'm right, then 2 Thessalonians 2 becomes the clearest statement, bar none, that the rapture happens before uh, the tribulation. All right, a couple more minutes here, so we'll just take this next section. The, the rapture is not the same thing as the second coming. Even if you hadn't considered all of this teaching about the wrath of God and being rescued before the wrath and the nature of the wrath and all of those things, uh, just comparing verses that people who believe in the rapture, such as myself, associate with the rapture and verses that people associate with the second coming, you see some clear distinctions. Now, the way we understand the Bible in its plain, normal, literal sense, uh, we see the rapture, of course, being the next great prophetic event to which the world awaits. But the second coming is not going to happen until at least seven years later. And it is not imminent. There are lots of things that Jesus explicitly tells us are going to happen before the second coming. Tons. The abomination of desolation, the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, the 144,000, um, you know, the gospel being preached to the uttermost parts of the earth, all kinds of things. So, you know, we can guarantee one thing, the second coming is not going to happen today. Because the things that the Bible says must happen before it haven't happened. Okay, So, what people who deny the biblical doctrine of the rapture suggest is that all of the New Testament passages that speak of a return of Christ, all of them, are lumped together referring to one event. 
So they would just move that left hand uh, highlighted in yellow event called the rapture all the way, and they would have one event, and they would just call it the return of Christ. Okay. Well, let's look at a couple of passages that speak to the return of Christ. And I think you'll notice right away there's some differences. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we looked at last week, Christ comes in the air. No doubt about it. But at the second coming, and we'll just use Revelation 19 as kind of the preeminent passage on his return, he comes all the way to the earth. <laughs> you know, just like he promised he would. His feet literally touched the earth, right? And he sets up his kingdom. Uh, at the rapture, only the saved are in view. No, no passage that speaks of the gathering in the air that ever speaks of unbelievers. Yet the second coming speaks of both saved and unsaved, the sheep and the goats. Okay? Uh, at the rapture, it, the dead are raised to life, meaning their physical bodies are resurrected. Their, their soul is, is in heaven in the presence of the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But remember, Paul said, the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's the dead are raised to life. At the second coming, it's just the opposite. The living are sent to death. What does he say to the goats? Depart from me into the everlasting fire. So anybody who survives the tribulation and the outpouring of God's wrath, but rejects the gospel and takes the mark of the beast, is going to be, is, that's what the goats are going to be comprised of. And they're going to be killed, both physically and they'll face eternal death uh, as well. Uh, at the rapture, believers go from earth to heaven. But at the second coming, believers come from heaven to earth. Uh, look over at uh, Jude 14. I don't have this on the screen. And then, and then we'll, we'll stop here. We'll come back next week with more contrasts between them. But in Jude, it's just one chapter, and it's in verse uh, 14. Jude is quoting interestingly, from an apocryphal book, the book of Enoch, which does not mean that the book of Enoch is expired, but it does mean this sentence that comes from it is inspired because the Holy Spirit led Jude to write it in the Bible. Okay? And he says this, Behold, Jude 14, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. Jesus again and again told the disciples during his earthly ministry that they would rule and reign with him, we, after his death and resurrection in the epistles, are promised places of positions of authority and opportunities to reign and serve with him. And we are going to judge the nations. So, that, so we're coming back with him. In Revelation 19, it describes us as riding on white horses. So it's just the opposite. Uh, at the rapture, uh, we know that it's followed by the tribulation, whereas the tribulation is followed by the millennium. The rapture is imminent. And, and I've talked about imminency elsewhere, that it's a biblical doctrine. In fact, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. But the second coming is not imminent. There are all kinds of things, as I mentioned, that must happen before it. The rapture is explicitly called a mystery, but the, old, but the second coming is frequently talked about in the Old Testament. It's not a mystery. It's all over the Old Testament. The purpose of the rapture is to rescue. Uh, the purpose of the second coming is to judge, as we talked about. Uh, the purpose of the rapture is either the rapture is always a message of comfort, whereas, as I mentioned, the second coming is a message of warning and judgment. So lots more to say. I'm going to give you several more reasons next week. The church will not go through the tribulation, but we're going to leave it there for now, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks so much.